This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Relying on executive authority in issuing 400 executive actions on immigration, the Trump administration implemented policies on a wide range of immigration issues touching on everything from asylum to deportation policy, refugee resettlement, and admissions from certain majority Muslim countries. The number of migrant apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border rose in fiscal year 2019 to its highest annual level in 12 years. Most of those apprehended were from the Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, which have struggled with violence and a lack of economic opportunities. The sharp rise in Central American families seeking asylum led to what Customs and Border Patrol called a humanitarian and national security border crisis. In response, the Trump administration made far-reaching changes to asylum procedures to discourage migrants from entering the United States along the southwest border. On top of that, the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted virtually every aspect of the immigration system and left millions of immigrants and their families out of legislative relief and left many people struggling to stay afloat in a time of economic uncertainty. The Biden campaign listed a number of immigration-related priorities that his presidency would tackle if elected. Most of these could be accomplished through executive orders, regulations, and changes to policies and procedures rather than requiring new legislation or legislative changes. His list included ending the detrimental asylum and border exclusion policies, reinstating DACA programs, withdrawing from the public charge rule, replacing prolonged detention with effective and less restrictive alternatives, protecting temporary protected status and deferred enforcement departure holders from being returned to countries that are unsafe, raising the annual refugee admissions numbers, rescinding the Muslim travel bans, and streamlining and improving the naturalization process. Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm Kara Ongwili, and I'm Associate Director at JMU Civic. My name is Abe Goldberg, and I am the Director of JMU Civic. And co-hosting this episode with us today is our Woodson Martin Democracy Fellow, Diego Salinas. In this episode, we talk with Aaron Reichlin Melnick, Policy Counsel at the American Immigration Council about immigration law and policy and what to expect under the Biden administration. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today, Aaron. I wonder if you can start by speaking to how the pandemic has left immigrants particularly vulnerable. Sure, and and thank you so much for having me. So I would say that when it comes to COVID-19 and immigration, the entire system has been disrupted, um, not just for those who lack documented status, but also for legal immigrants in the United States on a wide variety of visas, as well as those even in mixed status families where there are U.S. citizens uh, and those who are undocumented in the same household. Um, We saw this most obviously in many ways with the fact that many millions of mixed status families were left out of congressional relief in the first round of stimulus payments. And so that meant that if you were filing taxes jointly with somebody who has an um, ITIN, an independent taxpayer identification number, which is a way that many undocumented immigrants pay taxes, you were left out of the stimulus and you wouldn't receive your check even if you were a U.S. citizen yourself. And so Congress in many ways has left out undocumented immigrants and their families from protection. And that's just one minor way in which COVID-19 has made it more difficult for those to 
those in the United States uh, who are immigrants to thrive and to survive during the pandemic. But the other bigger problems are in many ways that the immigration system has somewhat shut down. Um, overseas, consulates remain closed, which means those people who need to go to consulates to get their visas renewed or who need to come to the United States in the first place are having enormous difficulties doing so. And inside the United States, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which processes immigration benefits, has been largely shuttered for months. And while USCIS is now coming back in December and more offices have reopened, naturalization backlogs are starting to be cleared, there are still delays and backlogs rippling through the system, which have meant a lot of uncertainty for people, especially when it comes to renewing their status. So in many ways, we're seeing immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, are not getting the support from the government that other people are getting who live in this country. And those who are immigrants are finding that they're having paperwork delays, Kafkaesque bureaucratic problems, and a lot of other issues that have prevented them from being able to support themselves in the same way during the pandemic as others. As a follow-up, can you talk about how the pandemic has affected immigration processing along the borders and within the United States, and how the coronavirus impacted individuals detained and working in detention facilities? At the border, we are in a very weird situation right now. So if you are not someone who's seeking asylum, someone who wants to come here for protection, the borders are shut, but they're not really shut. There are currently restrictions at ports of entry across the United States and at some airports. But those restrictions still allow at ports of entry across the borders, 250,000 people to enter the United States every single day. And thousands more people fly in from international destinations. And in all of those circumstances, those hundreds of thousands of people do not get a single coronavirus screening. And in fact, they have abandoned earlier in the summer temperature screening at airports for people flying in from abroad. But if you're seeking asylum, if you're seeking protection, the Trump administration has declared that refugees are the most dangerous threat possible to the United States and have banned all refugees from arriving in the United States and seeking protection through the use of a public health law that does not give them that authority, to be clear, but which they have invoked to block all refugees arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border and immediately turn them around and send them to either Mexico or deport them to their home countries where they may be persecuted. Now, inside the United States, those who are in ICE detention are also facing dire straits. There have been more than 7,000 people who have tested positive for COVID in ICE detention and at least eight deaths due to somebody uh, due to contracting COVID in an ICE detention center. That number, however, is likely low because once somebody has been released from ICE custody, we don't know what happened to them. And since ICE has continued to deport people around the world, and in many some cases also release people inside the United States who were in detention, we don't know what the actual death toll is of people who contracted COVID while detained, because it's very likely that some people contracted COVID and then were either deported or released and then died after. We know of at least one circumstance of that, but it's very likely that there are more. So at the border, 
we've seen a total shutdown of refugee processing and asylum processing. And inside the United States, we're seeing a lot of harm done by people who remain locked in ICE detention centers who are either contracting COVID or in many circumstances have been forced into solitary confinement uh, due to what they call cohorting practices. When one person contracts COVID, they actually lock dozens of other people into solitary confinement for days on end so as to supposedly not spread the virus. Aaron, can you speak to which immigration-related policies you think should be prioritized, and how will they impact the individuals to whom they apply? Quite a lot of what the Trump administration did was done via executive action, which means that a new president can come in and reverse it. But when Biden takes office, there's going to be a huge amount of things that he can do on the on day one and in the days following that. And then there'll be a lot. There's so many changes to the system that have been made that there's going to be have to have to be some form of prioritization. I think early on, you should focus on the things that can be done with the stroke of a pen. Um, for instance, the Muslim ban, or also known as the travel ban, is still in place. Many people don't realize that. And that can be undone instantly. And there's no way to basically effectively no way to challenge that in court. So it's something that he can get rid of immediately without any difficulty. And he has said that he will. Similarly, raising the refugee numbers to 125,000, all that takes is a written memo and the signature of the president. All of that stuff can be done really quickly. And I bet you that they are working on that right now and will issue it on day one. The bigger questions are going to be policies, uh, really asylum processing issues and unwinding of uh, bad regulations like the public charge rule, which may take a little bit more time. But for me, I think the moral uh, imperative is to first address at the border the Remain in Mexico program. Now, those who watched the final presidential debate may remember that at one point, the only moment of talk about immigration that we had during the entire presidential debates was President Biden referencing an inhumane policy where people are sent to Mexico to wait for supposedly wait for court hearings. This Remain in Mexico policy, also known as the so-called Migrant Protection Protocols, a truly Orwellian name, sent 68,000 people to Mexico to wait for hearings. And since March, those hearings have been completely indefinitely suspended. So there are now people who have been waiting for a year and a half in Mexico, waiting for hearings that effectively may never come under this administration. And at this point, there are probably only about 10,000 of those people who are still waiting in Mexico. Thousands of them have given up their cases and gone home because they knew that under this administration, they would never be allowed in. So as a result, there's probably about 10,000 people who are south of the border who are desperately waiting and who have been waiting for months or years just for a chance to have a court hearing where they can seek asylum. And they have been victimized they have been assaulted. Uh, we know that there are just publicly recorded more than 1,300 incidences of assaults, kidnappings, sexual assault, abuse, and in times murder against people who have been sent back under this program. So the moral imperative for me in the Biden administration is for him to immediately get those roughly 10,000 people out of Mexico because we have done enormous harm to them. And 
it's actually not very difficult to get them out. Because again, it's 10,000 people. And as I said, there are 250,000 people who cross the border every single day. So we've got plans for this. The administration, the incoming administration knows, you know, has presumably their own plans. And realistically speaking, you could get the vast majority of those people out of Mexico in a matter of weeks. And I think it will be important for them to do that fast before they start having to answer more complicated and difficult questions about how to process um, more families in asylum seeking protection who come to the border once Biden follows through on his promises to restore our asylum system. Thank you for that response. Given how politicized immigration has become, what response do you foresee from Congress as well as the general public? So uh, I am actually quite optimistic about how the public will respond to these because what we saw in the last four years of the Trump administration is a huge backlash to anti-immigrant policies. Across every single metric and every single poll, support for immigrants and immigration has gone up in the last four years. It's gone up among Biden supporters, and it's even gone up again among Trump supporters. And the cruelty that the Trump administration showed to people at the border has really backfired. Over the so-called border crisis in late 2018 to early 2019, Gallup issued had two polls, one in late 2018 and one in June 2019. Support for accepting Central American refugees actually grew during the so-called crisis because Americans looked at the border. They saw the destruction and devastation that was being caused there, the families locked in cages, the um, sheer humanitarian catastrophe that was occurring. And that actually made more people supportive of accepting Central American refugees. Americans just want to know that there is an orderly process in place. And the Trump administration spent the last four years destroying any orderly process because they thrived off the perception of chaos as a way to crack down. So, so long as the Biden administration can present border processing as orderly and not the sort of utter chaos that it was a year and a half or two years ago, I think the American people will actually approve of it. Though this is, of course, before the Fox News machine and others go into place declaring that, you know, our borders are being overrun, which is, I think, a real fear for everybody. But they're going to do that no matter what happens. We could have the world's most humane and sensible processing system at the border and Fox News would still be declaring that, um, you know, immigrants are coming to kill your children. Anecdotally, Aaron, at our at James Madison University, you know, our students really um, represent different positions across the political spectrum. And, and I've seen with our students, you know, some more liberal, some more conservative that do seem to align on this idea that we need an orderly process at the border. And so I, I'm, I'm seeing that with many of the students that we interact with. So thank you for sharing about the broader numbers with us. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's actually fascinating, the Gallup polls. Um, when Gallup polled in October 2018, there was a plus 8% support for admitting Central American refugees. And then when they polled again the next year in 2019, after the so-called border crisis had started to abate, there was a plus 18% support for accepting Central American refugees. And we've similarly seen, you know, in 2020, Gallup polled Americans, and for the first time ever since they started polling in 1965, 
a major um, more Americans support increasing the level of immigration than support decreasing it. Um, it's now about one third, one third, uh, one third for increase the level of immigration, keep it the same, and decrease it, with slightly more supporting increase than decrease. But as much as early as like a decade ago, 50% of Americans supported decreasing the level of immigration. So to get to a point where there are more Americans saying increase it than decrease it, it's a real sign that sentiment has shifted. And I think what the Biden administration needs to do is seize on that sentiment and recognize that now is the time to push forward on more humanitarian policies and embracing the immigrant population rather than the last four years of attacking them. You know, you can push the envelope because of how bad the Trump administration has been. I think Americans are, are ready for change on that front. I love that idea of uh, pushing back against radical chaos with radical uh, compassion, which kind of leads us into this next question. Um, a ruling issued by U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan in November prohibits the Trump administration from using a pandemic-era emergency border policy to expel minors who are apprehended without their parents or legal guardians. The administration, however, recently conceded the U.S. border officials have expelled at least 66 unaccompanied migrant children without a court hearing or asylum interview. Can we expect any changes in policy toward minors apprehended without their parents or legal guardians under the Biden administration? And what might such policies look like? To provide some further context for that number, that 66 is the number of children who were expelled from the border after Judge Sullivan issued his order, so in direct violation of a court order. Now, at least 30 of those were on a flight we're physically on the plane, and I think the plane may have taken off about five minutes before the order was issued. Or um, certainly, ICE has said that the they became aware of the court order while the plane was already in the air. When it landed in Guatemala, an ICE lawyer supposedly wrote to the agency and said, "Don't let them off the plane." But the email had allegedly not gotten to them in time. And so rather than go back and try to get them back on the plane and bring them back, they just accepted the fact that they had deported them in violation of the court order. But so that's that's just the ones who were deported after the court order. Before the court order, there were about over 10,000 unaccompanied children were expelled under this border policy invoking public health law. And the public health law, by the way, does not give them the, the authority to do that, which is why the court ordered them to block it. It's a public health law that was basically enacted in the late 19th century. And every person to look at it suggests that it, what it really allows the government to do is to quarantine people. It doesn't allow them to deport people. You And in fact, under their authority, they could actually deport U.S. citizens under this law if they wanted to, and they are just saying that as a matter of policy, they don't intend to. But that's how absurd their interpretation of this public health law is, that they say there's a law that's been on the books for 100 years that they have newly discovered has the enormous power to deport U.S. citizens. And as as you can imagine, every court that's looked at that, even courts that have Trump-appointed judges had looked at the policy have gone, of course you can't do that. That's not what the law is. So setting that aside, 
the fact that they've essentially invented a brand new way to deport anyone they feel like in the name of COVID that has now been blocked partially in court for unaccompanied children. Uh, the reality is, is that we need to find a way to process people at the border safely because of COVID. And unfortunately, the Trump administration has spent the last 10 months tripling down on this policy of expelling people rather than and deporting them rather than processing them safely. That means that when Biden takes office in January 21st, all of the infrastructure that could have been put into place over the last 10 months to process people safely will not be there. So he will inherit a border that has spent the last 10 months sticking their fingers in their ears and basically saying we can deport our way out of this rather than find any way to process people safely. So in the first couple of months, it's going to be really important to surge resources to the border, PPE, um, but potentially the, the pro new processing centers that could be set up to process people safely, uh, maybe find a way to get the vaccine to frontline border off officials who may encounter more people um, and be put into higher risk as a result of that, and find a way to do this thing safely. But at the same time, we also have to take a step back and look at what public health experts say. Again, I want to go back to that 250,000 people enter the border every single day number uh, I gave earlier. Because realistically, what we're actually talking about is maybe a few hundred to a few hundred refugees a day across the entire border. And should numbers go up, maybe about a thousand, maybe 2,000 refugees a day, which is not where we are right now, but where we could be next spring. And recognize that that's a few thousand people. When there are 250,000 people who are entering through the ports of entry legally with no COVID screening, even minimal COVID screening and protections at the border for refugees will do more to protect us from COVID than the sort of mess that is going on at ports of entry where people are just coming in and there is no process. So we have to take a step back and recognize refugees are not a threat. Um, a few thousand people coming in, some of whom may have COVID, is less of a danger to the United States than 250,000 people entering legally every single day and people flying in from around the world. Uh, and we have to recognize that these are issues of proportionality here. We can't become overly terrified of refugees just because the Trump administration says that we should be when in a broader context, refugees are just a tiny amount of people in comparison to when there are hundreds of thousands of people testing positive for COVID every week in the United States through community spread. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to ask a, a small follow-up um, concerning the 66 unaccompanied migrant children who were deported uh, kind of at the same time, like you mentioned, that that uh, court ruling came out. You know, I'm assuming these people are 17 and under, does ICE just leave them at the airport? Is there anyone there to receive them? You know, I was wondering if you can shed some light on what happens after they get off that ICE plane. Yeah. So the ones who are, most of them are being sent to Central American countries because that's where most come from. There are Mexican unaccompanied children who under a quirk of law would normally be able to be deported rapidly. Um, if they're Mexican, they are literally just being walked to a bridge into, you know, over the Rio Grande and shoved on the other side and said, good luck. Um, if they are, you know, Guatemalan, Salvadoran or Honduran, 
they're being put on the plane. Some of them are as young as, you know, 10 or 12. Most of them are older or teenagers, but there are some who are, who are very young. They're supposedly, you know, of the 10,000 or so children who've been expelled under this policy, you know, likely that hundreds of them are, are not even teenagers yet. They are basically just brought back and, and flown to, if they're Guatemalan, they're flown to Guatemala City, you know, and taken off the plane. And then the local Guatemalan officials are the ones who process them. But, you know, if the Guatemalan government doesn't know where their parents are, they may end up in uh, the custody of Guatemalan foster care. And, you know, there's a, a really tragic situation which has occurred in some scenarios, which is is a truly horrifying one. Um, and I sort of, my heart aches every time I think about it. There are some parents in this, what I mentioned before, this Remain in Mexico program, who have given up hope for themselves and were at the Mexico border and sent their children across the river or across the border in the hopes that the U.S. would treat them better because they were unaccompanied children than if they came as a family because they'd given up their hope for themselves and thought maybe I can my child can have a better life. And we know that there are dozens of cases in that scenario where the U.S. government knows that the parent is still in Mexico, where they take the child and then they deport the child back to their home country alone, leaving the parent in Mexico and the child potentially uh, having to run into a, a government foster system or the, the local government having to scramble to find relatives who are still in their home country, maybe an aunt or an uncle or something who can take in the child. So, so that's the worst case scenario, in my opinion, when that happens, when the U.S. government knows that a parent is in Mexico and chooses to deport the child back to Guatemala or El Salvador or Honduras anyway. And a lot of these, you know, uh, children who, the ones who are able to get a court hearing, a lot of them don't have access to a lawyer. At least, you know, the system isn't required to provide one for them. Correct. That's right. I mean, many people are shocked to know that children can go into immigration court alone without a lawyer. So it seems that we don't even know yet the full scope of the damage that is being done. Um, but in November, the House Judiciary Committee released a 550-page report confirming that the Trump administration had full knowledge that hundreds of children would likely be lost to their families forever as a result of its 2018 zero po tolerance policy. Um, several groups have called for the United States government to offer reparations to families separated at the border, including a lawsuit that seeks monetary damages for the trauma that mothers and their children suffered during the separation. What do you think are some ways that the Biden administration could support victims of family separation? And does the United States government owe some form of reparations to families affected by the zero tolerance policy? The clear answer to that is yes. Um, separating parents from their children, as, as the House Judiciary Report reveals, was done deliberately to inflict harm on families to deter them from coming. And, you know, that is the ultimate math of deterrence-based policies. If you inflict enough pain on people who seek protection, then fewer of them will come. And there is some evidence that that does work to some extent. I mean, 
you can think about it in the sort of really awful ways you could do it. You know, the U.S. government could come up with a policy that says we're going to kill one out of 10 people that crosses the border. And would that reduce the number of people who are trying to cross the border? You bet it would. But at what cost? And we saw with family separation, the cost was enormous. Um, Thousands, uh, you know, over 4,000 children separated from their parents over the span of zero tolerance and the so-called El Paso pilot project that came before it. And my organization, the American Immigration Council, is actually representing some of the families in a, in a lawsuit seeking damages against the government because, you know, the, the trauma of separation cannot be undone just by reunifying children with their parents. Um, children and uh, parents both have post-traumatic stress disorder Um, the pain of the month separated, you know, needs to be compensated. And of course, as you mentioned, there are still hundreds of children who have not been reunited with their parents. Now you hear from the Trump administration occasionally that some parents have chosen not to reunite. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is in some cases technically true, but they are missing the big picture, which is that The choice that parents were given when their children were in the United States and they had already been deported, we're talking about this circumstance specifically. When children are in the United States and their parents have been deported, if they have since been contacted by um, the litigation teams who sued the government, the choice they're given to reunite is not, you can come to the United States and be with your child. It's, if you'd like, we'll deport your child from the United States back to their home country. That's how you can reunite. And so it's no surprise that most parents in that situation have said no, because their child is is in many ways now safe, safe for the very reasons that they took them to the border in the first place, safe from the gangs, safe from their persecutors, safe from the government that had in many cases abused them or ignored them and abandoned them. And so, of course, many parents in that circumstance have said, no, I don't want my child deported from the United States where they're safe back to be with me. They want to come join their parents in the United States. And so what the Biden administration needs to do is promise more than just pouring resources into finding the remaining parents who haven't been located. It's to promise that any parent who is back in their home country, who is deported without their child, be allowed to come back to the United States, have a second try at seeking asylum and be reunited. And, and, you know, if it were up to me, it would be more than just a second try at asylum. I think, you know, we give people in court punitive damages. You know, if you inflict enough harm on people, then you punish the person who inflicted the harm and you try to make the person who was harmed whole. So I think that there should be a form of legal status given to separated parents. You know, if we took your child away from you, the very least we could do is give you a green card, right? That would be the best way to make the parents old, bring them back to the United States to be with their children if the children are still here, and then give them some form of permanent legal status as recompense for the enormous harm done to both parent and child. Thank you for that response, Aaron. President-elect Biden pledged a 100-day moratorium on deportations while on the campaign trail. What is the power of the executive branch to halt deportations? And I'm curious, is there any reason the moratorium couldn't be expanded indefinitely? The 100-day deportation moratorium is certainly legal. Um, the executive branch has what's known as 
prosecutorial discretion authority. For the same reason that local sheriffs and, and local police departments can choose not to arrest people for low-level mis- you know, marijuana misdemeanors, something that we've seen many prosecutors and local police do across the nation in recent years, the Biden administration can direct ICE not to deport anyone for 100 days. Now, going beyond that and extending some form of additional status to the 11 billion by executive order, some of that may be possible. There are sort of ways to do it under existing authorities, but importantly, what there isn't an authority to do is provide permanent legal status. Only Congress can give people a permanent path to legal residency, though Biden could take some executive actions which would make people who are currently undocumented eligible for some forms of relief um, that they would otherwise not be eligible for. But that's certainly not everybody. And so I think when we'll see this 100-day deportation moratorium, we'll give the administration some time, time to roll back the worst of the policies to uh, reevaluate people's cases, to take a hard look at all the damage that was done under the Trump administration and start restoring some discretion and fairness and and justice to the system. But at the end of the day, the immigration system is fundamentally flawed. Um, We've seen over the last four years that we need a new paradigm and a new way of moving forward, and that is going to take Congress. So I strongly encourage the Biden administration to be inventive, as inventive in protecting immigrants as the Trump administration was inventive in attacking immigrants. But just as Trump couldn't actually do permanent damage to the system without Congress, Biden will not be able to do any permanent improvements without Congress. And we could find ourselves back in a similar situation four or eight years from now, should a new administration take over and want to restore the anti-immigrant policies of uh, the Trump administration. Immigration moderates caution about undoing Trump's restrictions too quickly, fearing a new surge of migrants at the border. Are worries about a migrant surge backed up by the data? And what's the Biden administration's plan to address the backlog of pending asylum cases that have accumulated during the Trump administration? Right now, the data does not support the idea that there is a pending surge of migrants arriving at the border. And it simply doesn't. We know for a fact that there are fewer families and children coming to our border in uh, November of this year than came to the border in this five Novembers previously. So this November was the lowest in six years for families and children coming to the border. Now, does that mean that next year when the Biden administration takes over, there may actually be a, a new... Uh, group of people who start coming to the border once it reopens in many ways, it's quite possible. And given the sort of devastated circumstances Central America is finding itself right now, um, especially with the the COVID pandemic and uh, being hit by two hurricanes in a row, Hurricane Ada and Hurricane Iota, um, there's a lot of devastated communities in Central America where many people may find that going to the border and seeking protection or or trying to come here in some ways is their only way to survive. Uh, so we should expect probably that there will be more people who come next year. 
Uh, we're not certainly not seeing, despite what uh, the government is trying to make you think, any evidence that that's already started happening. Um, Mark Morgan, the head of Customs and Border Protection, has been going on a propaganda tour lately trying to claim that rising border numbers show that there's been a Biden effect of more people seeking protect, you know, more people coming to the border. That's um, hogwash. There's no evidence of it. And in fact, the rising border numbers right now are because of the administration's own pandemic policies, which have allowed single adults, primarily single Mexican adults, to cross the border, be apprehended, be turned around and sent back to Mexico within a couple of hours, and then try again the next day. So you're seeing right now basically what we saw in the 90s with a lot of single Mexican adults crossing two, three, four times, being caught every time, and then maybe making it through on a fifth time. And that's why border numbers are going up right now, not because of families and children seeking protection. So just to clarify, uh, you're saying that you know some of the data reflects not you know, a, a too many individuals rather, but rather one individual attempting multiple times, and that's counted, that counts towards the, uh, the number that is being presented. Yes. In, in October of this year, 40% of all people apprehended at the border had been caught more than once this year. And, and that's the highest number it's been in, in decades. Um, by, to give an example, um, in 2018, it was below 10%. So, so now we're seeing that number likely continuing to go up because under this um, border expulsion policy we've talked about, which applies to unaccompanied children and refugees, also applies to the sort of prototypical undocumented immigrant, which is somebody who's just seeking to come here to work and to have a better life but who doesn't have a claim for protection, those individuals are crossing multiple times now, two, three, four times, being caught two out of three times, maybe three out of four times, and either giving up after you know two or three ar uh, arrests or making it through on the last try. And so that has been the main driver of increase in border numbers recently, single adults who are not seeking protection, which the lesson to that is the Biden administration in many ways, could artificially actually, if the Biden administration reverses this pandemic-related policy, the one I said was illegal earlier, and acknowledges that it's illegal and re returns to border processing what it was before, you'd actually see border numbers plummet immediately because they would have to start referring people for criminal prosecution again. You'd stop turning people around in you know five minutes, and then they just try right again. And you'd have sort of an artificial drop in numbers just related to that. So, so as much as the administration is saying right now that border numbers are going up, we need to panic. A lot of that's artificial and as a result of this pandemic-related policy that allows people to cross two, three, four times. Aaron, President Obama has been dubbed the deporter-in-chief for the record amount of deportations carried out under his watch. Can you address concerns that President Biden might return to Obama-era practices? Can you talk about what deportation practices might look like and whom they will likely affect most? I think there are a lot of real concerns about returning to the status quo, because as, as you acknowledge, the status quo under Obama, at least in the first four years of the Obama administration, was not great. There was a lot to criticize, and Obama got, I think, legitimate critique for trying to increase enforcement to placate Republicans without actually managing to make any progress in improving the situation. 
Then you saw in 2012 with the creation of DACA and a shift to new enforcement priorities, what Obama called felons, not families. Uh, there was a change and, and deportation numbers plummeted after 2012. But the problem is, is that felons, not families, still got a lot of people who are in families. You know, just because somebody has a criminal record doesn't mean that they don't have a family. And I used to, in New York, uh, for two years, I represented immigrants in immigration court, uh, working for the Legal Aid Society. And most of my clients had felonies or misdemeanors or convictions. And many of them had been in the country for 15, 20, 30 years, had jobs, had families, had started small businesses, and were the government was seeking to banish them from this country, the country that they'd made their home just because they had a criminal record. Now, I would really like to see the new administration move even further away from this policy of criminalizing immigrant communities towards adopting a more humane system that takes into account more than just whether or not somebody has a criminal record. We've seen the criminal justice movement push this way a lot in recent years, and it's gotten a lot of success. And I am very heartened by the fact that on the campaign trail, Biden seemed to acknowledge that the Obama-era immigration policies, which in the first years really focused on enforcement, just not only did they not work, but they were inhumane and they weren't the right idea. And so when I look at the Biden platform, what is he has promised to do and what uh, you know his surrogates have said he is going to do, it is the most progressive platform on immigration we've had in generations. If he even follows through on half of it, it will be progress. But I think that no one's going to stop and let him sort of rest on his laurels and return to the Obama-era policies because the last four years have shown us that that status quo was itself also untenable. You know, there wasn't any major progress done, only temporary progress, and we really need to shift the system towards one better and a better one. And one easy way that this could be done is committing to vastly reduce immigration detention and ICE detention. Studies have consistently shown that immigrants show up to court and if you provide them case management alternatives, the opportunities to be in compliance, they will take advantage of them and they'll show up to their court hearings. And when they accept that the process that they've been put through is a fair one, they're more likely to accept the consequences and, and um, you know, turn themselves in for deportation. But we also have to recognize that the law itself is so overly punitive. You know, a person with a green card can be deported for being caught with a joint. That blows a lot of people's minds when I tell them that. A person with a green card can be deported for being for shoplifting, for having two shoplifting convictions, even if what they shoplifted was five dollars. So ten dollars worth of shoplifting over two, you know, that may occur one ten years in the past and one, you know, in the present, those two shoplifting offenses over the span of ten years can be enough to get somebody with a green card deported. So we need to address our punitive, harsh anti-immigrant laws that criminalize um, communities of color. And we also need to move past the Obama era felons, not families ideas towards one that takes into account a whole person and not just what their criminal record says. Aaron, thank you. We have a final question that we ask all of our guests on Democracy Matters. 
And it's been an enlightening conversation with you to learn about what to expect under a Biden administration as it relates to immigration policy. I want to thank our good friend Woodson Martin, who recommended you for this conversation because we've learned so much. And it seems like there's an incredible amount of work to do that is directly impacting the quality of life of so many people. Our final question, Aaron, what would you do to strengthen our democracy? What I would do to strengthen our democracy is help restore a sense that facts matter. Um, I am in a place where I am right now because I believe firmly in the facts. I believe that in an objective reality, but also one that, you know, all facts can be interpreted different ways by different people. But we have to at least have some core factual understanding of what's happening. And I think the best example of that I gave is this rising border numbers issue. You know, you can look at the numbers and say, wow, number go up, that means we have surge, you know, or you can look at it and say, here's the root causes of this, here's what we're addressing, here's what's actually happening. And over the last four years, we've seen government agencies repeatedly misrepresent data, at times outright lie, attack courts, attack good faith actors. And I think we can help restore our democracy by having a government apparatus that doesn't manipulate data, that acknowledges objective reality, and that accepts criticism in a way that doesn't seem like it's being attacked unfairly. It's possible to disagree. If you're a government official, it's possible to disagree with your critics while still acknowledging that they make good points and that you just have a different policy perspective. And the last four years have been a series of the exact opposite of government officials repeating propaganda, attacking their critics as having bad faith and wanting to undermine the United States and really distorting reality. And so I hope that in the next four years, the Biden administration thinks very carefully about government communication and accepting criticism without blowing up and accusing the other side of bad faith. And I hope that that will help restore our democracy and move us to a situation away from the last four years where we have in some ways been on the brink. Aaron Reichlin Melnick is policy counsel at the American Immigration Council. Thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters.